before we get into the text, I, I, we're going to kind of uh, back into it. If you do have a Bible, uh, we will get to uh, Judges uh, chapter 6. But uh, let me just preface that before we get into the text with some questions and then kind of pave the way for what I believe the Lord has uh, directed me to this morning. If someone were to move in or hang around you uh, for any considerable amount of time, what would they say is the center of your life? What is it that your life revolves around? Uh, We talk many times about having a family altar. I remember growing up as a kid, we had ours on Saturday night. And I was the fidgety ADD little boy running around, and it, I'm sure it took all of 15 minutes. It felt like it was 15 hours, and uh, yet it was an important part of our life where my father opened the Word of God, we read some scriptures, we talked, and we prayed. And uh, I hope that that Uh, is happening in your home, and it was really formative in my life. I don't remember anything that was said there. I don't remember what we talked about, but I do remember my father led the home spiritually, and that became the center of our lives. So what's the center of your life? What's the spiritual core? Every person has one. We're all living it out. We have fundamental commitments and beliefs that drive our behaviors, In our message today, we're going to go back to the book of Judges, and some of you know the history there, but Judges recounts the time right after Israel had come into the promised land, and Israel had entered Canaan, but in many ways it was the opposite. Canaan had entered Israel. It was a notorious time, a time of spiritual decline, when the theme of the whole book of Judges is that verse that is echoed time and time again, everybody what did what was right in their own eyes. And so we're going to be looking at that. Israel had become co-opted by the surrounding Canaanite culture. And aren't we glad we have no cultural pressure on us today to compromise or to uh, in any way uh, surrender? Uh, Their lives were organized around Baal worship. What was Baal worship? It was fertility rites. It it was a very perverse, sexualized, weird, pagan uh, lifestyle. And in this text that we're going to be seeing today, we're going to encounter Gideon's family, and we're going to be looking at the center of Gideon's life and the altar in their life. Now, although a lot of people don't realize that they have one, they do have a center, they do have an altar, they do have ultimate commitments, uh, you'd be surprised how many people are very unconscious of that. And when you try to help them sort it out, you find out what they're really committed to is just one big mess. It's a bunch of contradictions. It's things they learned as kids. It's things they got from their family. There's things they picked up in school, things that they learned in pop culture and entertainment. And, and, and it's just one big mess. So today we're going to be looking at our center. How do we know what is, is at the center of a person's life? I would say one way to know is, what do they do on Sunday mornings? Where are they on Sunday morning? Are they hanging out at Home Depot? Are they working on their hot rod? Or maybe their golf game? Maybe they're at the, at the beach? We've all heard that. Oh, I worship the Lord at the beach. Okay, I don't see much of that going on, but I, I've heard it happens. Uh, I'm in, uh, they're up in, mountain, in the mountains recreating. Maybe they're uh, 
at the stadium or in front of the TV watching the game. Or any other thing. Oh, here's one. Maybe they're just sleeping off the hangover that they got Saturday night. Playing video games. Lost in that world. Or they could be worshiping the one true and living triune God. So Sunday mornings are a good way to know what are at the center of people's lives. In today's message, we're going to see Israel's fault center. Uh, Israel had been assimilated into the Canaanite culture, and God is going to confront it. And we're going to have to confront our temptation to compromise. Are we going to be PC, politically correct, or are we going to follow JC, Jesus Christ? And the world is constantly putting pressure on us to be co-opted into a, a relativistic view of Jesus. You can have your Jesus, but we all just need to coexist and we all have to get along. And why are you so stinking exclusive? Why do you insist that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Why do you keep saying we need to know Jesus in order to go to heaven? Why don't you just get along? And so that pressure is on us today. Are we going to salute the flag of political correctness? Or are we going to follow the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all? If you have your Bibles, then let's look in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to talk about reclaiming the altar. Now, it came to pass that same night that the Lord said to him, that is to Gideon, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal, that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in proper arrangement, and take a second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Wow. That's a pretty interesting command. Israel has really, really fallen. This is, and it's, it's, this is very evident when, if you've read the whole book of Judges, because now here is God. He's raised up Gideon. Gideon is, is the deliverer, right? He's the judge. He's come to set his people free. And in all of the previous encounters with Judges, what were those deliverers to do? They were to be raised up and they were to go fight the enemies. But in this story, the very first thing that the deliverer has to do is go to war on his own family. He has to go back and tear down his father's Baal altar. Isn't that interesting? Israel had backslidden to that extent that the deliverer of Israel, the great judge, basically was raised in a pagan home, and his father was effectively a priest of Baal, maintaining the Baal worship in their community. It's interesting, some have said that if this type of worship had gotten to this town, this is a little backwater town called Ophrah, and if, if Baal worship had gotten to that extent, that we should assume that this is pervasive. This is normal Israelite behavior. They are involved in syncretism. They're worshiping Baal. They have some maybe faint, memory of worshiping God, the true and living God, and yet they've been co-opted 
And so Israel's accommodation of idolatry was in direct contradiction to everything that God had commanded them to do. Remember, in Deuteronomy 12, uh, Moses says, and you, when you go into the promised land, this is what you shall do. You shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire, and you shall hew down the graven images of their God and destroy the names of them out of the place. You weren't even supposed to talk about them. Shouldn't be a memory of these pagan Canaanite gods. And yet here we are just one or two generations into Israel's history in the promised land and they're completely sold out to Baal. So even as charity begins at home, guess what? So does spiritual responsibility. By the way, there's a little bit of wordplay here in the text. Uh, the The name Gideon means hacker. Not computer hacker, uh, the other, hack with a sword. And the commandment of God to Gideon is, Gideon, you need to go and gid Baal and the worship of Baal. So Gideon is called to hack the Baal altar. Now when you think about this, um, we need to uh, see, I think, a picture here of the great doctrines of grace. One of the key foundations of our faith, and I hope it's your confession, certainly it's mine, is that I am saved by grace alone. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that I've ever done to deserve God's mercy and grace. In fact, God seems to go out of His way to save losers like me. It's not the winners, it's not the, the, the powerful, the rich, the mighty that God seems to reach. He reaches people like me, the base people, the weak people, the foolish people, what uh, Paul calls the the off-scouring of this world. So God's kingdom of grace, Christ's kingdom, uh, is extended to prostitutes and tax collectors and pagans and alcoholics and drug addicts. But what do they all have in common? They've all been humbled by their sin. It's not the proud and the respectable that come into the kingdom of God. They don't think they need it after all, do they? But so we see here, I think, a very wonderful example of God's grace writ very large. God had every right at this point in Israel's history to abandon Israel because he commanded them to obey. And now Israel has gone whoring after Baal. And part of the great scandal of this story is that Gideon's calling comes in the midst of this context. If if you went back up a little earlier in, in Judges 6, it says that, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Well, did they really? It was at best a shallow call, right? They were, they were mad because the Midianites were coming in and eating their food, but were they really sorry? Sorry for their sin? No, because in the midst of crying out for the Lord, they were continuing to worship Baal, going all on at the same time. And in the midst of that, God still raises up a deliverer. Now, I don't know if that comforts you or not. Sometimes we think, wow, if I was the Lord, aren't you glad you're not the Lord, or I'm glad I'm not the Lord? I would have pulverized people by now, lightning. But God is gracious. God is kind. 
And even though Israel is crying out, and it's not a sincere turning from their sin because they're still tied up in spiritual compromise, yet God still delivers his people. Does that encourage you today? It encourages me. Because I know sometimes in my calling out to the Lord, probably not as sincere as it should be. Not as earnest as it should be. I, maybe I really don't regret my sin as much as I ought. And yet God is kind. And he sent a Savior to save people like me. And to save people like Gideon and Gideon's family. Do you freely and uh, joyfully confess that you are utterly saved by the grace of God? Does that humble you in the, and, and you rejoice in it, or does that offend you? You would be surprised how many people are stumbled by the gospel because it requires that they admit their own ability, their own weakness, and that they cannot please God in any way. For those of us who see it and we get it, it is our joy. But for people on the outside, they still think that somehow they can earn God's favor, that they deserve it. But we don't see ourselves as God sees us. We're all convicted felons sitting on death row. That's what we deserve, with eternal judgment looming before us. And God, in his great mercy, hands us a pardon, and we stand with that pardon in our hand, gazing into a gaping hell, knowing that we are free, we are pardoned, and we are able to have a relationship with God by pure grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that your testimony today? Do you know that? If you don't know that, this morning, before you leave, I want to talk with you. You can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have a place in heaven by the sheer grace of God. All you must do is put your faith in Christ alone. Another important principle we see here, though, for us as Christians is that God's discipline really does begin at home. Notice in First Peter it says, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the, the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? If you're a Christian and, and you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, God is jealous of you. He loves you. He purchased you with the price of his own son's blood, and he takes his relationship with you seriously. And if we are his children, he loves us. And if he loves us, the Bible tells us he disciplines us. And he will even use the ungodly, as we'll see in this story, as a means of Israel's sanctification. He allows these things to come into our life, trials and testing and people, in order to grow us up and discipline us that we might uh, flee to Christ. Probably the greatest example of this is Pharaoh, remember? In Romans 9 it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may, may be declared in all the earth. And so God raises up, outside forces to bring pressure on, on the church and upon his people that he might discipline us and grow us in grace. And we see that happening in Israel at this time. Is God at work in your life? Are you feeling a little bit of pressure? 
feeling a little bit of opposition out there? Rejoice in it. Because God is at work in us. And even though our path is sometimes filled with trials and and discipline, we know that He loves us. We know that He redeems even these hard trials that we're going through for our good. And we will see this in this story. Now, before we jump back into the story, I always like to ask the question, and you should always, when you're reading the Old Testament especially, is where is Christ in this story? Where do we see Jesus revealed? Because all scriptures bear witness to him. I'm sure your pastor has taught you well. So we need to see Christ in this story, and it's Christ is all over this story. He's here in uh, many different ways. Let's just look at a couple of them. In verse 25, he says, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar. So Gideon is commanded to take a bull, not just any bull. What kind of a bull? A bull that's seven years old. What does seven represent in Scripture? It's completeness and perfection. So it's a a, a specific bull. And of course, this speaks of Christ in his perfection. If you will, he's impeccable. He is without sin. He will be for us our perfect sin offering. Notice he was to take the second bull to reclaim that apostate altar. What do we know of Jesus? Well, we know in the New Testament, Jesus is the second what? The second Adam. The second faithful Adam who comes in our place and lives the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died and obeys the Father perfectly. And he becomes a perfect, sacrificial, second bull, if you will, that destroys Satan. First John 3.8 says this, For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So in this sense, Christ is the greater Gideon. Gideon came and hacked down the Baal altars and offered up the sacrifice. But Jesus comes as the greater Gideon and he crushes Satan's head even as we read in Genesis chapter 3 today. Having perfectly fulfilled God's law, Jesus then offers up his own life as a sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is the greater Gideon, the true and faithful high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the destroying conqueror, who fully and finally defeats Satan and all of his works. I'll even make a Presbyterian say amen. Let me hear an amen out there. All right, Presbyterians, help me out here. So then the second part of the story in verse 27, now we see Gideon's action. Remember, this is Gideon, God's mighty man of valor. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too too much to do it by day, what did he do? He did it by night. Isn't that interesting? Now, Gideon does do God's will. God said, go and destroy the altar. Did God tell him when to go? No. So uh, Gideon goes uh, to do a glorious job, but... 
in a rather inglorious way, right? He kind of sneaks in under cover of night, a little night ops, if you will. And I, I automatically think in contrast, remember Elijah? When Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, he did it in broad daylight in front of everybody, calls down fire. I mean, one of the most heroic acts of, of uh, recorded in the scripture. This is not Elijah. This is Gideon. Gideon goes at night. And he's afraid, and he's afraid of his fellow Israelites for a good reason. You know what? Other people take their worldviews very seriously. Did you know that? They will kill you when you contradict their worldview. Those people with those coexist bumper stickers don't believe a word of it. They're not, they have a worldview, and they're very committed to it, and they will defend it, and, and they will attack you. So Gideon seems to be very afraid of, of his own family even. But in Gideon's defense, he did what God said to do. God did not specify when to do it. Is Gideon being wise and cunning, or is he just cowardly? Or, remember this, by the way, as you think about it, remember the next task that Gideon would have would be to go up against the Midianites, and some of you know the story. When did God send Gideon to fight the Midianites? Remember? At night. With trumpets and torches, he surrounded them, and, and, and so maybe this was preparation for a greater exploit. But either way, Gideon's motive was to serve God, and he did what God wanted him to do. You know, God looks at our heart, doesn't he? He looks at our motives. He looks at our obedience. In fact, Jesus confronted the Pharisees of his day because they pretended to be wanting to do God's will. Remember this story in Matthew 21? He turns the guns, if you will, on the religious leaders of his day, and he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to a second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Assuredly, which of the two of them did the will of his father? They said to him, The first Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Interesting. God's concerned with our obedience. Some of us, oh, Lord, I'll do it, I'll do it. And we never follow through. Um. So, in this situation, we see Gideon. I want to, you know, we can kind of chuckle at Gideon, but at least he went. He went and did God's will. He may have done it at night, but he got the job done. Gideon knew obeying God would alienate the Baal-worshipping friends and family members, and it could have got him killed. And that brings up the other issue, doesn't it? Family can be that false altar, that false center of our lives. But Jesus even confronts that as well. What did Jesus say? He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son and daughter is not more than me is not worthy of me. Excuse me. So our absolute love for God, our commitment 
to him as the center makes all secondary relationships pale by comparison. Gideon stood up to his own family at great personal risk. He had no idea what was going to happen. He was going to confront an idol that a lot of us don't have the courage to confront. Jesus deserves our absolute obedience. But guess what? Our only hope is in His obedience for us. He was obedient because we cannot be. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed the Father. He won the victory over Satan. But it sure didn't look that way, did it? When Jesus was conquering Satan... The cross looked like an absolute failure. It looked like Satan had won. But God was working in that cross to save us, even through the sufferings of His own Son. And like Gideon, Jesus rescued us. But when did Jesus rescue us? He rescued us in darkness. Remember the story on the cross? It said that darkness covered the earth. And it was on that dark moment the darkest moment in human history where God the Son hung suspended between heaven and earth, bearing the sin of His people, that we were saved. The Son refused to look on our suffering Lord. Darkness covered our Lord as He bore our sins. And one of of the great benefits then of that act of obedience, even in darkness, is that In the irony of God, now all darkness has been dispelled. And now He has become the light of the world and we too, His disciples. So as the giver of life and the Savior of our souls, Jesus is worthy of our perfect obedience, our absolute obedience, as we seek to show our love to Him. And then finally, let's look at Gideon's vindication. Verses 28 and following. So Gideon goes and does the deed. It's in the dark of night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Interesting story. So that morning they wake up. It seems like every good morning, and and the air is filled with the aroma of a sacrifice. So they come out of their homes, they expect to see their Baal altar ablaze in all of its glory. And what did they see? Their idols, their altars are torn down, and in its place, a proper altar to Jehovah, with a sacrifice being offered on it. Immediately, they want to murder. They, get, they become angry. Frankly, they become afraid. Why? Because in their worldview, they had come to believe that their future was tied up in the blessings of these fertility gods. If they wanted to have crops, if they wanted to have uh, uh, cattle, they needed the blessing of Baal. And now somebody has come and 
desecrated Baal's altar, and therefore their future is at risk. All they can do is think of somebody has to die. Somebody has to appease Baal. As I said, the coexist bumper stickers um, are not true. Where is Gideon, though? That's interesting. Gideon can't be found. So our, our mighty man is hiding again. Remember, where did we find Gideon at the beginning of the story of Gideon? Hiding. Remember, he was hiding, threshing the wheat in the wine press because the Midianites were all around. And so now we're back to Gideon on the lamb. And he's God's mighty warrior now is hiding from the Israelites, not from the Midianites, but from the Israelites. And notice, there's no remorse here. There's, there's no hint of repentance. We don't see a revival. Uh, this is not a come-to-Jesus moment in the history of Israel. Rather, it's the murderous, satanic spirit of Antichrist that raises its head at this point. Remember, that happened in the ministry of Jesus on more than one occasion. They would be so angry that they tried to lay hands on him. They tried to kill him. You remember that? In 1 John, though, we read, This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is already in the world. And frankly, we have that same struggle today. This isn't just about Gideon or Jesus. It's That spirit of Antichrist is in the world, and we are confronted by it every day. Now, we have a great advantage, though, don't we? We have the advantage of being on this side of the cross where Satan has been destroyed and put on public spectacle, and, but yet the spirit of Antichrist is still in the world. He's losing and has lost and will lose, but that spirit is still out there. And if we are standing for Christ and if we're doing God's will, uh, we would be naive to not think that we would be confronted with that same spirit that's alive in the world. But what do we know? First John 4, 4. Little children, you are of God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So we have that advantage on this side of the cross. So we stand and we confront the spirit of the world, even as Gideon did. Only we don't have to hide. And then there's a surprise in this text. I always like the the surprises that God puts in here. I don't think anybody saw this coming. So what happens? They're on the hunt. They want to murder Gideon. Somebody's going to pay for desecrating the Baal altar. Verse 31. But Joash. Now, who's Joash? uh, Gideon's father. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, that is Baal, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Interesting. If you will, Joash uses a little bit of reverse theology on him. Gideon's pagan father... Now, I'm seeing this as a token of grace, that his eyes have been opened. Now, some people say he's just saving his son and perhaps himself uh, from this angry mob. But I I don't know that that's what's going on there. Uh, But it seems that he is, he's seen the light. 
if Baal is really God, isn't Baal big enough to take care of himself? Can't Baal uh, defend his own honor? And he cleverly turns it around and says, anybody who thinks they have to rescue Baal, isn't that more sacrilegious than tearing down a Baal altar? That's the person that deserves to die, not Gideon. Let Baal fend for himself. And he accuses the whole townspeople of sacrilege. So, then the story turns. Verse 20:32. And therefore, on that day, he, that is Joash, called him Gideon, Jerubbabel. So he got his name changed, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Interesting. And we know this in Scripture. When names are changed, things have changed. Uh, New seasons of life have come. And now Joash, I think, who's finally getting it, and I believe God is working in Joash's life now, changes his son's name from Gideon, the hacker, to the one who contends with Baal. He is God's mighty warrior after all just as the angel of the Lord had called him. And Gideon is now given this this new name, Jerubbabel, and if you will, it's it's mocking Baal. It's it's defying Baal. It's in your face against Baal, Jerubbabel. And now we see that the mighty hacker, Gideon, is now... A symbol, a defiant symbol of of Jehovah and his authority and his power to destroy and defy all rivals, including Baal. Reminds us of, of course, our Lord, doesn't it? Why? Because for his obedience, we are told that the Father has given him a name. A name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father's glory. What does that mean for us today then as we conclude? Did you know by God's grace you've been given a new name? You bear the name Christian In that name is the name of God's own Son, Christ. The spirit of Antichrist is confronting you. Why? Because you're a symbol. Just as Gideon became a symbol of defiance of the world, everyone who bears the name of Jesus, who has the name Christian on them, is, if you will, defying this world and this world system, your existence, your name, who you are, is an affront to God's enemies. And you are a sign, you are a symbol of their own demise, and you know what? They know it. You know, the Bible says, to, to those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life. We smell good, and we smell like life. But to those who are perishing, we are the fragrance of death. Why? We remind them of their own impending doom. And... As a result, we get the flack that comes for representing the truth to them. 
So Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what's the end of the story? Let's read these last few verses. Now, verse 33. All the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped against the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him and he sent the message throughout all of Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asherah, Zebulun, Naphtali and they all went up. To meet them. So, having rebuilt the family altar, Gideon is now prepared to fulfill his mission. And that's what it's about. When you make Christ the center, you too are empowered. You too are clothed by his spirit to fulfill your unique calling. Do you know what it is? What has God called you to do? How are you to represent Christ? If he is your center, he will use you to advance his greater purposes in the earth. Will you? Are you? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the promise of God is, if you will come to him, he will receive you. And when he receives you, he will make you his child, and he will give you a mission and a purpose that will thrill your soul. Something greater than you can even imagine that God wants to do in and through you as his beloved child. Do you know him today? Are you following him? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this great story of Gideon, an exemplar of grace. If you can save and use a man who's fearful and cowardly and comes from the wrong family, Lord, certainly you can use us here today. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are gathered here. Lord, I pray, first of all, that we would all know you. If there's anyone here who does not, I pray for saving faith to be bestowed upon them. May they turn to you even in this moment and say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And Father, as your people gathered here in worship, we sometimes see ourselves as Gideons. We're fearful and we're cowardly. We're hiding. And yet, Lord, you have promised to give us your spirit. And you said that your spirit has not given us the spirit of fear, but of boldness and a sound mind. Lord, give us that boldness of spirit, Lord, that we would stand for Christ in our day. Lord, thank you that you are greater than he that is in the world. And I pray for this church and for this pastor and for the leaders here, Lord, that this church would be a beautiful example and light to this community of the light of Christ who suffered in darkness and rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and sending us into this world. Use us, Lord, to advance his name, his fame, and his glory. Amen.